Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 106 of the Standard Issue podcast. I hope you're all all alright out there. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I joined ranks with around 87% of the great British public by making banana bread. Mm. Mm. I also made a pig. I don't know what that means. I made a pig out of paper. It was complicated, but it's, it's glorious. Oh, origami. Not quite origami. There was glue involved. I tell you what, if you go to at Standard Issue podcast on Instagram, there will be a picture of the pig. I saw it on Instagram. I did. I wondered how you'd done it. By the way, I also made banana bread this weekend. Yes. I still have no oven. Hannah, I feel like you're missing out on like a sort of yeah. really integral part of the lockdown experience. Yes. Yeah. Banana bread and human contact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this week I managed to buy toilet paper. Hooray! I never thought that would be exciting enough to be my fact of the week, but here we are. How do you feel about a long-held dream coming true, Hannah? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. all I can say is never give up, people. Never give up. <laughs> How many did you snaffle up? Just the one packet. Like four or nine? I had nine. It had oh, nine. Oh, good. I'm relieved to hear that. The listeners can't see this, but Hannah's lying and she's actually recording this from a fort made entirely of toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, I immediately like just throw it over my neighbour's houses out of my car window, <laughs> like I was at a frat party. Did you wet it and then throw it so it's all stuck on your ceiling? Yeah, I mean, I regretted it immediately. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and I don't know what you said to it, Hannah. It's a bit of good news for you here, but my houseplant has come back to life. Yay! Ooh. Yay! How does it feel to have a long hell dream come true, Jen? <laughs> uh, well, it's I'm quite, you know, with impending motherhood approaching, I'm quite relieved, to be honest, because I was a bit like... Hang on, though. Does this mean Hannah has to be in your house at all times oh, after fuck. the baby's born? I hadn't thought about that. I am available for both Skype and Zoom plant whispering, if anyone out there has problems. It worked. What can I say? The leaves don't lie. <laughs> She's like a plant Shakira. She is. Later on, I chat to Dawn Redshaw, who runs two women's refuges in Salford, about the surge in domestic violence during lockdown and what we can do to help. Mick and I chat to writer and mental health campaigner Natasha Devon about her new book, Yes You Can, Asia Exams Without Losing Your Mind. I talk to Romaniac and CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith, about the latest on Brexit, because Sorry, that's what? still a thing, guys. <laughs> what? I know. Oh, I've forgotten about that. And it's close-ups of startled sheep ahoy as Dunleavy does disaster watches Tremors. <laughs> That's good. Thanks. <laughs> but first, shitheads, shit maths and shitless. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we wander boldly through the news like a cat through a Zoom call. <laughs> I don't want to speak out of turn, but I am a bit pissed off with the government. Why? I, I know, I know. <laughs> but it does seem that those running the country are very keen to dodge responsibility and pass the book when it comes to this pesky virus killing thousands of people and messing up the economy. So where is that blame landing? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it is very much your fault. On Sunday, Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Medical Director and Director of Health Protection for Public Health England, Yvonne Doyle, said that predictions regarding the death toll are not possible, as it all depends on the behaviour of the British population. 
That's right, this is all on us. And while social distancing and self-isolation are not to be sniffed at, this onus on the behaviour of the British population deciding how many people wind up dead does rather gloss over some important questions for the government. Questions such as, why all the initial talk of herd immunity? Why did Cheltenham go ahead? Why was Prime Minister Boris Johnson touring wards shaking hands with coronavirus patients? Why do we have the highest projected European death total? And no, I'm not an epidemiologist, I can barely pronounce it, but I reckon I'm qualified to understand that NHS workers shouldn't be dying because of a lack of PPE. Just like I'm not great at maths, but I can still do the sums that show thousands of people caught a potentially fatal virus before lockdown was implemented, because it turned out government advice to take it on the chin was dangerous bullshit. Also, people cheering the government's Herculean efforts. A few notes. Getting ill through your own boasted about stupidity, re not following the guidelines around COVID-19, does not make you a hero. Giving the public money in a crisis is not generous. This money for the public is public money. Also note the quietly added, all this money will have to be paid back. This is not the free cash it's billed as. Finally, making a show of clapping for the NHS and egregiously thanking the immigrant carers who nurse you through your darkest hours when you've made life almost impossible for so many immigrant workers in the NHS and head up a party that has systematically dismantled and sold off our health system for more than a decade is the worst kind of hypocrisy and it proper boils my piss. Thanks for listening. Yeah? Yeah. Jen, I believe you have contrary views. Well, I reckon we should feel pretty confident about our government's <laughs> capability uh, of dealing with this crisis. Especially if Pretty Patel's weekend press conference was anything to go by. So she's been kept out of the public eye for a while now, but with around 12,842,000 members of the cabinet now <laughs> officer, what do you mean that isn't even a real number? Well, someone's got to do the talking, haven't they? And I really feel like we're in safe hands with pretty counter-terrorist offences, Patel. Do you remember that? God, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? It does feel like a while ago. What I'm saying is she's got form. When was March? (laughs) I don't know. When was March? I felt quite reassured when she told the nation that 300,034, 974,000 tests for COVID-19 had now been carried out across the UK, excluding Northern Ireland. Because why have a book of trends? Yeah. She is so daft, isn't she? Anyway... Even more so when the thorny issue of PPE for NHS staff came up. Because, as Mick says, that's still a thing. I think the problem is it's not a thing, Jen. It's it's not a thing, and that (laughs) is a thing. And guess which section of society has been disproportionately represented in NHS staff deaths? Well, I'll give you a clue, guys. It's not white people. Mm. Hmm. Is that because they're genetically different, are some? (laughs) No! And that's racist, by the way. It's because the NHS employs lots and lots of migrant workers. The people, Pretty Patel, would rather like to see sent home. But not for another year, if you don't mind, because we'd quite like you to die saving our lives first, if that's okay. That all seems fair, doesn't it? Yeah. Was she sorry, asked a journalist at Saturday's briefing, about the lack of PPE being provided to frontline workers? Well, she would be very, very clear about this, she said, adding, I'm sorry if people feel that there have been failings. And that isn't even a real apology, is it? I saw the most glorious tweet. I can't remember who did it now. But if you find it, credit to them. And it said, Pretty Patel essentially just said, 
I'm sorry if you feel you've died of coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So, after hearing all that, you might find yourself with a growing impatience slash rage that the media seems to be failing to hold our government to account. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're all pleased that Boris Johnson didn't die. But no, we don't think daily updates on his health are front page material. Anyone surprised to hear Lad Bible at Saturday's (laughs) daily press briefing might also want to consider that its reporter, a journalist of 20 years standing, asked one of the best questions. Although, it must be said, if you want to be taken seriously as a news organisation, you're going to have to change that fucking name. (laughs) But while I've certainly reached the end of my tether with journalists asking questions about when lockdown might end rather than say, ooh, any number of things that are way more important right now, I also need to say hashtag not all journalists. The newspaper industry, especially local papers, looks increasingly like coronavirus might finish them off. Not that they didn't have underlying health conditions, of course. But the irony remains that at a time when the news is so central to all our lives, journalists around the country have been furloughed as revenues tank. Last week, the Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish News announced they had gone into liquidation. Something that was joked about, nay, even celebrated by Kerry Ann Mendoza, editor of the newspaper, The Canary. Can you hear those bunny ears, Jen? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which pretty much shits on her claims to be a socialist, wipes its arse on her claims to be a journalist, and flushes any idea she might be a decent human being. I'll leave the floater of whether it makes her an anti-Semite to you guys. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Hannah, but that is one of the most glorious extended toilet analogies <laughs> I've ever had the joy to hear. Well, I've got toilet paper now. That's where my uh, my mind inevitably <laughs> goes. The explanation as to why so many papers are failing is both simple and also not as simple as you think. People have less money, so may have cancelled their subscriptions. Many shops are closed, so print copies are on sale in fewer places. And either way, people are going out less, so not picking one up. Advertisers are also not flush with cash, so ad revenues are falling, including those on websites. But, here comes the rub, with the companies that can afford to advertise, many are specifically requesting their adverts don't appear alongside COVID-19 stories. So, despite the fact online editions are getting record hits, the papers that produce them are making no money at all from that visit. So, what can be done to save them? In truth, I don't actually know. I'm not going to tell you to prop up a Murdoch organisation or a newspaper that's based in a tax haven or the Daily Mail if you don't want to. But buy a local newspaper if you see one and you can afford it. And the next time you're on a news website, check out which companies are advertising all over it, but not on its most vital health coverage. And then maybe add them to your shit list. I know we're all keeping one. Why are they social distancing from the most read stories? Is it because they're afraid of the bad connotations of COVID-19 affecting sales or whatever they're advertising. Some sort of bad will kind Mm. of contagion. Yeah. Do they think maybe it looks a bit like, um, well, a bit glib if you're like, here's a story about 10,000 people dying. Come and buy a deck chair at Argos. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. So if you look at companies like Boots, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say that, you know, people still need medicine. Women will continue to menstruate, like, regardless of whether or not there is a... Oh, no, I've stopped for the country, Hannah. I'm doing oh, a bit. Oh, that's, that's very goodwill of you there, Mick. <laughs> Taking one for the team. 
Anyone fancy some good news? Yes, please. please. Okay, well, I am stretching the term news a little bit, but skip on over to friend of the show Rachel Paris's Instagram or Twitter to discover a world of joy. Rachel and her husband, Marcus Brigstock, are locked in lip-sync battle and it is an all-singing, all-dancing delight. Who will win? Only time will tell. And it will tell it to be Rachel. (laughs) Also, if proof were needed that papers are struggling to talk about anything but coronavirus, The Guardian has started a feature called Tree of the Week, which does exactly (laughs) what it says on the tip. Do you have to hand any facts about last week's tree? Yeah, this week's tree of the week is a horse chestnut in Oxfordshire, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Can you submit like your own yeah, tree? Yeah, it's, it's reader recommends trees. Last Christmas, I was at my mum's house. I think it was Boxing Day and uh, everyone was like doing something. So I was sitting on my own at my mum's house and I turned on the TV and there was a programme on and it was Judy Dench talking about trees. And I thought, oh, this is perfect viewing for for Boxing Day morning while I'm waiting for everyone to decide what it is we're going to do today. Just Judy Dench, just stroking trees and talking about trees. She'll love that. Let's stick with people being excellent on Twitter for a bit. If anyone hasn't seen Andrew Cotter's infrequent but mighty tweets about his dogs, you are missing out. The sport commentators Labradors, Olive and Mavel, have become unwitting gladiators in imagined sporting events for which Cotter provides the hilarious and often cutting commentary. And they are glorious. Also wonderful, if you've not seen it, is John Krasinski's Some Good News, a news programme for children made by the actor and his kids. It's genuinely touching, silly as hell, and riddled with famous faces like a modern-day Muppet show, which is pretty much exactly what the world is screaming out for right now. Mm -hmm. Well done, the family Krasinski. Jen, have you got more good news for us? I do. So you remember last week when I was talking about how the world had turned on greedy, selfish Premier League footballers for getting paid too much during a national crisis? Well, they have voluntarily responded to that criticism by launching the hashtag Players Together Fund and partnering with NHS charities together to help get funds to where they are needed most. The initiative is... The player said in a joint statement, separate to any other club or league conversation about salaries. So well done them. And also Danny Rose, who is a Spurs player and um, is on loan to Newcastle at the moment, gave lots and lots of money to two different hospitals last week and also £10,000 to domestic violence charities. So thank you, Danny Rose. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we check our energy reserves for dealing with sexism and find them needing some juice. Because if coronavirus has put a stop to reporting on pretty much anything else other than coronavirus, it certainly hasn't put a stop to sexism. The world can always make time for sexism. Yeah. And it seems those who believe women have been having it all their way and getting a bit too big for their boots for too long now may have reason to rejoice, as the current public health emergency has the potential to roll back some of the gains on the road to sex equality achieved so far over the last few decades. Okay, so it is a beast with many tentacles, this one, and I'll be getting the full lowdown from Sam Smethers, CEO of the Fawcett Society, in the next couple of weeks. But here's the gist. Women are bearing the brunt of the social and economic consequences of coronavirus because women are radically overrepresented in low-paid, precarious sectors such as care and retail. And those jobs also mean that women are also the sex most on the front line. 
Women also tend to take on the bulk of unpaid family care at home, a job that has become even more all-consuming thanks to physical distancing and self-isolation. And there's physical danger at home too, as according to the UN, violence against women has increased by more than 25% in many places around the world. Finally, there are noticeably few women in leadership roles decision-making on the response to this pandemic, and it shows in an approach that has mostly ignored all of the above. A notable exception to this is Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, a standout leader in this crisis who has focused on the human as well as the economic consequences and whose country has a single figure death toll. Christ, I wish she was RPM. Once again, I'm just largely left with, yeah. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Dawn Redshaw of Salford Women's Aid. Dawn, hello. Hi, nice speaking to you today in this sunny day in Salford. Is it sunny in Salford? My God, why isn't that headline news? Yeah, it's sunny in Salford. We're not all out with our whippets. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Wigan, so you're talking to all someone right. who knows. <laughs> So Dawn, you run two women's refuges in Salford, is that right? Yeah, and I also run the Iris Project, which is, I don't know if you're aware of it, it's a project that works with GPs, so GPs can identify domestic abuse in households, so when a person goes to the doctors and they've got underlying health issues, they will get asked questions about domestic abuse and they get referred into my service. And I also run the high-risk advocacy service for the cases that go to Marrack. So we've got quite a bit going on in Salford. And what's Marrack, just for the listeners? Marrack is a multi-agency risk assessment conference where every week, fortnight or month, all the highest risk cases in the area are discussed. So when we say high risk, we mean those that are at serious physical harm or they could be homicides. So we deal with them in Salford weekly. We get together, so these all the agencies represented, police, social care, children, social care, adult social care, drug, alcohol, and we discuss the um, individual and between us we work out a safety plan for the um, victim and their family and also try and manage the perpetrator within society with the support of CCG and probation. I mean, it's, it's a huge job that you're undertaking. What's it like on the ground right now? Oh, it's an absolute nightmare because um, the two refugees, obviously, we've had to put them into lockdown. So Mm -hmm. the women are not allowed to be going out visiting family and friends. So their mental health and well-being is being affected because they're becoming isolated, more isolated than usual. Requests for trying to get some personal protection equipment for the staff to go in. Still not got it. That's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And obviously the children have been off school for weeks as well, but the children can't go out apart from in our little play area. So it is a problem. It's a problem for a lot of our women and men and children. Just in case listeners are wondering, why is this such a dangerous situation for women and children living with abusers? I think because this is social um, lockdown and the fact that they can't get family and friends and family and friends can't go visit them either. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the problem because they're being, abusers will isolate you anyway. Yeah. But now because you're not allowed to go anywhere or see anybody. There's more, it's more rife, obviously, in the houses. And for the first time, they may be stuck together with the children and, you know, not been able to go out to anywhere, basically. So I think that's part of the problems. But saying that, for a lot of victims of domestic abuse, being kept prisoner in their own home is not new to them either. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think more cases are probably coming forward for those that didn't have domestic abuse issues before, but a lot of our victims are used to, well, not used to, that's the wrong word, but 
you know, have been kept isolated in their own homes and not allowed to access family, friends or, you know, other social activities. It must make it increasingly hard to actually access any help or seek any help as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it does do because I know a lot of helplines have shut down. We're not operating a face-to-face service now, which is difficult as well because I think it's better when you can do face-to-face. Mm-hmm. We're obviously um, still taking calls. We've extended our helpline as well to cover weekends. Yeah, it is more difficult to get help. And in terms of the police and, you know, the other emergency services, I suppose they're busy doing other things as well. So it is is more difficult. And children's services are not operating on full capacity. So they're trying to do video conferencing calls, child protection meetings, children need meetings. And it just worries me sometimes about the safety of all these like victims and children because no one's actually physically seen them. So yeah. anything could be going on. And perpetrators do use power and control, don't they, and pretend everything's hunky-dory in the house. And if no one can get in the houses or see them, then that is a worry as well. It's a worry for us. Absolutely. You've led really neatly on to the media language around domestic homicides and that, that it was a quiet family man. They were like a quiet family, a loving family man. And I'm, you're seeing in the media now lockdown is being used as one more excuse in a litany of excuses for violent murdering men. Yeah, and also consumption of alcohol as well, because we heard for years alcohol and drugs um, um, cause domestic abuse. They don't, you know, they contribute, but they don't. So mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, I've, I've, myself, when I've been going to the supermarket, the amount of people queuing up for packs of beer and cider and stuff, is it's quite worrying. There seems to be a lot more alcohol being consumed. Off-licences have been deemed essential, haven't they? Yeah, my mind Morrison's last week. I had two tins of tomatoes and a tin of peas, and they said I couldn't have three tins of vegetables, but I could have three bottles of wine. Jesus. So I swapped my tin of tomatoes for another bottle of wine. <laughs> priorities done, priorities. <laughs> and a tin of peas. <laughs> but, yeah, it is, um, like you say, so abusers will use this social isolation and lockdown as part of the controlling tactics. And, you know, it's saying it's, um, it is of massive concern. And like you say, it's like, oh, you know, these lovely families, the, the dads and stuff out, the lovely dads, and, you know, they're not, because it's help us, you know, because you can't tell who's an abuser and who's not, really. Exactly. If we had that, yeah, because we had that magic one, then we wouldn't be able to be with our services. And that's the worrying thing. The other thing I've noticed is... This weird sort of acknowledgement as if this is a new crisis, as if coronavirus is causing this crisis, when domestic abuse, domestic violence has been a crisis for decades. Well, it has, hasn't it? And if you think about the, the laws of the land, I mean, what was it, 1869, you could beat your partner with a stick as long as they're all thicker than your thumb. The um, commissioner of the police in 1984 said um, domestic abuse was like stray dogs and lost property. So, you know, we're still... We've still got a long way to go to change the mindset within society because we've still got rules and, and beliefs that carry on like that. And no, the coronavirus hasn't caused domestic abuse. It's always been there. But in some ways, I suppose it's good that um, it, well, hopefully it's been highlighted again and hopefully it will continue to be supported. But who knows mm-hmm. after it all goes back to normal, if it goes back to normal. What advice can you give to women who currently find themselves in danger? Contact your local helpline 
when it's safe to do so. If you leave a message, then we will get back to you and use like, a code word as well. So, you know, if we use a code word and we'd ask you to use a code word, there's um, apps that you can look at online as well. That um, If you're on the phone, then you can alert somebody to, um, you know, to the police and stuff like that. We're trying to, in Salford, I've actually asked Salford Council if they will do a leaflet drop to every house in the area. So if people are getting leaflets through the door, then it's not it's not being individualised. So the perpetrator can't go mad if they see a leaflet, if every household can have a leaflet yeah. about what to do in case of domestic abuse. Because I think we have to do different tactics, really. And, of course, phone the police, because the police are, you know, they're geared up to support victims of domestic abuse. We can still get DVPNs and DVPOs, which is an order banning the perpetrator from the house. And in Salford, we're very, my service, I mean, the marvellous, and I just don't say that as the manager, but we've got a really good system going on at the moment where our, where our family solicitors that we use can actually get non-moles over the phone from the judges so there's no court performances and, you know, witness stuff. So there is stuff out there people can do. In, in first instances, you know, the police, but then look at your local helplines and what support you can get as well. Yeah, yeah. And and what can we do to help to help you, to help more grassroots refugees, to help women in, in danger? Publicise the helplines and stuff. But also, I think this needs to have a big campaign because we don't get funded off the local authority in Salford. Mm. They stopped funding for our refugees um, when supporting people stopped. And I know a lot of refugees are struggling, and we kept open... Um, because I well using enhanced housing benefit, but obviously we've not got the people in. We don't get the rent, so we can't pay the bills. Yeah. So I think we do, we do need a big push for the government to look at securing funding for specialist refugees and specialist gender specific women's refugees, and not into the generic housing because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. You've got to be specialist. You can't just be a generic right housing worker because you've not got the specialism of understanding domestic abuse. That's what we need, because, I mean, as much as people moaned about supporting people, it's secured funding for refugees, but since that all went and the local authority unring-fenced it and kept it for themselves, that's why a lot of refugees have had to shut down. Yeah. And the vital to support women and children and men. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... I think with refugees, the other thing they do is is they show women that they're not on their own in this situation. Yeah, 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 they do. And and but that's the thing about this lockdown now because we've had to tell the women obviously not to be um, you know mingling in the communal areas. They've not to be cooking at the same time. So the women in our refuge are actually that said before they're suffering with the mental health and like well being because part of living in a refuge is like you say you, you share your experiences and you know. They cook meals together and they'd look after each other's children and and they can't do that now. Oh, I don't know. It makes me feel not happy because they've been used to being told what to do by the perpetrators at home and you know I feel like a bit of a jailer sometimes that they're telling them yeah. they can't do this and they can't do that whilst trying to keep them happy. But you know they're not allowed to socialise. I mean we we've, we've um, had loads of paint and stuff donated and asked them to do some painting and stuff, but. They can do that, but I wanted them to do it together to share their experiences. So it's a bit boring for them at the moment. People know that the people out there still live in our society like this. Because I think, for me, domestic abuse is still... It doesn't really happen, or it happens behind closed doors. And mm-hmm. yeah. I've worked here for 32 years, and it's 
it doesn't change much. We just have new initiatives, we have new policies, but what works never seems to get proper funding. And what works is like specialist provision for women and children escaping domestic abuse with specialist workers. So that's what we need to be looking at. Dawn, where can people find out more about Salford Women's Aid? We've got salfordwomensaid.org. We've got our own. We're also on the um, council intranet. We're on the victim services webpage. And I know people can't go out, but a lot of our posters was on the back of toilet doors in hospitals. We've got the support, as I said, from the GP surgery. So if a person can get to the doctor's, and they tell the doctor that, you know, they've got issues at home, then the doctor will refer them in to us. So there is ways and means of us getting these people safe and secure. And if people wanted to throw you a few quid, I guess that would be helpful. Oh, that would be absolutely fantastic, yeah. So again, if you look on our webpage, we've got a Just Giving page as well. Yeah, you can just give to us. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Dawn, thank you so, so much for chatting to me. And just a reminder, in case you or anyone you know might need it, the free phone 24-hour National Domestic Abuse Helpline is 0808 I am joined on the phone by Naomi Smith, Romaniac, bunker host and CEO of Best for Britain. Thank you, Naomi, for joining us. Hello, and thank you very much for having me on. How is Lockdown UK treating you? Well, the, the most exciting thing that happens under my duvet these days is recording podcasts. <laughs> um, so doing a lot of those, we're doing a daily show with, with our bunker podcast. And at Best for Britain, actually, it's going really well because we are a very sort of digital um, focused campaign rather than a ground campaign. So most of what we did anyway has been completely unaffected. And we've got this really amazing team of, I think they're described as digital natives, these amazing young people who don't remember pre-internet days or pre-app days. So they've just hit the ground running and doing whatever they usually do from home. So it's all good. Great episode of The Bunker yesterday. What I liked about it was, or I listened to it yesterday with David Lammy and Aisha Hazarika, who is a friend of ours, is the fact that everybody caught the joke later. And so it always had like a nice rolling laugh through it where people <laughs> caught, the, caught the joke in a slight delay. Why I wanted to talk to you is because, you know, Brexit, very much still happening. And the other day I was having a conversation with some friends of mine and they were saying about what tweet do you think about all the time? What tweet haunts you? And the tweet that haunts me was tweeted by your colleague, the lovely Alex Andreu back on the 25th of September 2019 and he said Yellowhammer is not a worst case it's a base case because it excludes unknowns imagine a disorderly no deal exit coinciding with a great unpredictable difficulty imagine Thomas Cook going under on the 1st of November or foot and mouth outbreak or a volcano in Iceland and interestingly the first comment underneath also 25th of September 2019 says or more likely a flu pandemic um, I think about that about once every 3.5 minutes, I'd say, <laughs> because that's what we're now facing, isn't it? Brexit, it seems unthinkable. Yeah, at Best of Written, we, we've spent about three years looking at the risk registers of lots of public bodies, whether they're NHS trusts, local authorities, and almost all of them have come back saying, well, after a decade of austerity uh, and cuts, we are in a position where we might just be able to weather one storm, such as a really hard Brexit, just about. 
but two, no way. The double whammy, we'd be on our knees, we wouldn't be able to cope. And of course, now we've already seen that all of the PPE that the government put aside for no deal Brexit has had to be released for fighting mm. coronavirus. It obviously is nowhere, nowhere near sufficient. And you know, that's just one example of the stress and strain that all of our public services are under anyway. And the prospect of them being able to cope with crashing out of the EU without a deal, of course, would be completely catastrophic. You you said, you know, whether or not Brexit would go ahead. I mean, really sadly, it happened when yeah. Big Ben didn't bong on the 31st of January. And so what, what we're really concerned about is that it, it doesn't it doesn't end up being a, a situation where the transition period, which is due to end at the end of this year, forces us to crash out because negotiations haven't been able to take place. What, what happened to me psychologically was after we left, I thought, I'm just going to have to get on board with this. I'm just going to have to accept it. And the easiest way for me to do that was to disengage with it, to be honest. And then along came another crisis, which took up 95% of my headspace, uh, which I'm guessing is pretty common I know you guys obviously still care about Brexit, and thank God you do. I have lost all concept of what stage we're at with it. Yeah. Has everybody lost contact a bit with it? The, the situation that we're in is that effectively negotiations have ground to a complete halt. You know, they're they're just not happening. But consultations are continuing Um between the UK and the EU and they're conducted through something called the UK EU Joint Committee and they have met for the first time on video conference around I think it was late last week sort of end of end of March certainly um, and that's headed up on our side by Michael Gove. Now we we passed something called the withdrawal agreement and our parliament backed it uh, after the general election in, in December and it says that the transition period can only be extended by mutual agreement through this joint committee for either one or two years. So you get one chance to ask for an extension and that one ask can either be for one or two years. Now, here's the rub. Although the transition period is due to end at the end of 2020, the deadline to request the extension is actually midnight on the 30th of June. So we are less than three months away now from that hard deadline by which we would have to have asked for an extension if we wanted one. Now, you know, it, it, it is all a little bit crazy because time is almost up. So, uh, you know, our negotiators are literally trying to negotiate a negotiating plan so that they can get back to negotiating the stuff they would have been negotiating if COVID-19 hadn't negated negotiations. Um, <laughs> which is a, <laughs> which is a tongue twister way of saying we, we, we really do need an ex- we need that extension because quite rightly, all governments are focused solely at the moment on fighting this virus that's what they should be doing it's only right that they do and it really isn't sensible or reasonable to be expecting them to go and try and negotiate one of the most complicated trade negotiations in modern history it's not an easy thing it was going to be an ambitious timetable before the world got struck down by coronavirus Um, and, and in this environment now it really will be you know, almost impossible, I would imagine, to to negotiate a good deal for Britain uh, in the time we've got left. So we really need to ask for that extension. Now, I can imagine, and I have to apologise, my cat is absolutely determined to get crashed. Never apologise for a cat. Um, I love cats. 
Uh, well, I've got two, and any moment there'll be one on each shoulder. Um, oh, you're gonna knock the mic- this one called? This one's called Joan. She's going to knock the microphone over. You have to get off the table, Hello, Joan. Joan. <laughs> okay. Clever okay, Joan. Naomi's met you, so now you could like, get down. <laughs> my Twitter name is Pimla Cat, because I live in Pimla Cove, and I love cats. They keep, my cats keep coming up, and then basically showing everyone their bum during meetings. Like, just a yep, lovely... Of course. Standard. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions or one of the problems you're going to have I think personally or not you but we yep. are going to have is that certain the certain argument against asking for an extension is going to be this is just another excuse to stop this isn't it interestingly the only place that seems to be coming up from at the moment is Brexit party advocates so people like Richard Tice and Nigel Farage are the ones that are really digging in on it and saying absolutely no way the rumors that have been in the press um, first the Telegraph and since then others uh, other papers has been that actually you know there is a, a growing understanding and sense within government that a transition extension is going to be needed and thankfully the polling really seems to be backing that up um, at best for britain we do loads and loads of data and polling it's it's kind of like our, our main um, activity that we do we track public opinion through focus groups and lots of detailed polling and we did a poll last week that was in the sunday times and that showed that nearly two-thirds of people in the country back the government if they go for a transition extension because they they just want the country to be focused on tackling coronavirus and not splitting its time and energy and attention across other issues and interestingly that poll included 44 percent so nearly half of conservative voters from 2019 and then YouGov did a poll that came out yesterday and that showed that in the last 10 days support for an extension has gone up even further and it's now a majority of conservative voters from 2019 who would back the government if they went for um, an extension to transition so there's there's really very little political risk for the conservative-led government to do this at this stage but of course there will always be the barking at the sidelines from the the zealot Brexiters that 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 want us to you know crash out and believe that we can all go WTO without hurting an already incredibly damaged economy. Yeah, what's what's interesting, I think, with this, you know, and by this I mean you know coronavirus lockdown, the the whole situation we're in now, is that it's a lot of the same voices were saying this is this is ridiculous, and we're talking about Farage, Tim Martin. A lot of exactly the same voices. Now, if they can be proved so wrong on this, do you think there's a potential that they, people can actually start to change their mind on Brexit? Not, I mean, it's too late for that, but... I think one of the most encouraging things we're seeing, and dare I say it, coming from quarters I would never expect to be congratulating Piers Morgan, making the strong case for immigrants and immigration and this this I think if if it's taught us one thing it's the absolute value to amazing people who put their lives at risk for us when they've got close family often living in countries not that far away you know that they're they're nearest to nearest but they've chosen to stay here and help us and keep us alive and protect us as best as they can while you know neglecting their own families and putting their own health at risk and I think that really has been a sharp reminder and I think the clapping at 8 p.m on Thursday evenings for our carers um, that of course has included a lot of people who will have voted for Brexit Mm. who will have 
voted for the Conservatives, um, now having that moment of understanding that actually we, we really do need these people and, and not just the medics, not just the, the nurses uh, and, the, and the doctors, but of course the ambulance drivers, the cleaners, uh, the delivery people, yeah. all of those. So I think, I think we will probably have some uh, you know, a pushback against Pretty Patel's points immigration system, because, of course, all of the people that I mentioned latterly, none of them would be eligible to come to the UK under uh, that new point system that's coming in towards the end of the year. So I think if we can begin to have a greater appreciation for others, from those from other countries, from different cultures, from different backgrounds, I think that can help to undo a little bit of the isolationism and the exceptionalism of Britain because this is a global thing it's a global pandemic mm. um, and hopefully it'll help people realize that that when a virus doesn't respect borders when a, a when climate change doesn't respect borders when crime often doesn't respect borders actually we do need international cooperation we do need to work together uh, and look it, whether it whether it'll be enough to 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 you know reverse brexit and have us rejoin the eu or not i i really don't know and that's you know another argument for another day but i'm i'm very i'm very hopeful that actually we are now um much more appreciative as a population um of uh, of particularly of eu citizens yeah i mean we we face i live in cambridge and we face a, a another sort of time bomb of, of immigration which is out there in the fens there are vegetables that will likely rot in the fields because there's no one yeah. to pick them which is an extraordinary situation for us to be in at yeah. a time where it's currently really hard to get fruit and vegetables Food. yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Is there a way that people of a mind can, other than, you know, screaming into the sky or writing stuff on Twitter, that we can apply pressure to the government to take that extension or to ask for absolutely. that extension? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So um, we've got a petition, which is bestforbritain.org um, forward slash transition dash coronavirus. So about 20,000 people have signed that already. You can go and sign that. Once you signed it, you'll then get, if you, if you, if you opt in, you'll get other um, uh, advice from us about how to contact your MP about it. That said, I think MPs at the moment are incredibly overwhelmed by uh, dealing with the horrendous situation in their own patch. They've got obviously, you know, hundreds and thousands of emails every day from very concerned constituents um, asking for advice. Uh, you know, needing for everything from repatriating people still stuck abroad to, you know, whether the local A&E is still taking people mm. if you're showing corona symptoms, you've got to go somewhere else. So at the moment, I would say, actually, unless it's a corona related query, I actually wouldn't contact your MP. But a, a really, really good thing to do would be to call your local radio station or write a letter to the editor of your local paper. And I say this because MPs staff monitor those two things yeah. like hawks they've got eyes and ears on those things and if they feel that local pressure is building for politicians to legislate because it, uh, i mentioned the transition period and the extension deadline being um in, on the 30th of june and boris johnson i think late march said um we've legislated for leaving at the end of the year so we must well of course that legislation would need to be undone for the transition period to be extended so we would need a vote in parliament so if mps are hearing that their constituents 
Oh, yeah. No, there is growing support now. They, they would be really quite cross if we landed the country with a double whammy. Then they are, I think, more likely to, to put that pressure on. And of course, we need Parliament to reconvene virtually in order to be able to do this. So I think anything you can do to say to your local paper, to your local radio station, it is not right that we take our eye off the ball from fighting this virus to do some very complicated trade negotiations that frankly could just wait we need to go for an extension. It would be madness not to. And my MP and the government would have my support if they if they choose to do that. I think that would be great. So call your local radio station, write to your local newspaper, and perhaps once we're through the peak um, of Corona, then take up writing to your MP again. Yeah, that sounds great. All I would add is also buy your local newspaper because they are on True. their knees this week. They are. And they you, really you, are. you just saying that just proves that the very worth of local media. Yeah. After the front page, the most read page is the letters page. Yeah. So I, it, is, it is worth trying to get your voice in there. Where can people learn more about Best for Britain and get involved if they aren't already? You can you can follow us on Twitter. We're Best for Britain and it's F-O-R, not the number four, Best for Britain. Um, and of course, you can just sign up to our website at bestforbritain.org slash join. We'd love to have more people involved in what we do. Terrific. And Romaniacs and The Bunker are on, people will be able to find you on all Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, exactly. I yeah. would suggest they do that. Um, they are always a really great listen. Likewise, thank you. We are joined by Natasha Devon, mental health campaigner, presenter, and author of the new book, Yes You Can, Ace Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. Natasha, hello. Hello. It's good to have you back. Thank it's been you. actually too long, I think. It has been too long. You've been busy, though. Yeah. I like being busy. I, I said in my other book, I have something called obsessive compulsive drive, which means I'm terrible I'm sure I at relaxing. Yeah. As soon as I stand still, all my nervous energy turns inwards and becomes really self-destructive. I, I'm really good at relaxing. Too good at relaxing, I would say. I love a relax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I think it's good. Yeah. Your new book is, well, I mean, I'm very much thinking it's what it says on the tin, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so it began as a book about exam stress. And then the more research I did, the more I realised that all the things that you would do to look after your mental health also make you cleverer. So it's ended up being about study skills that improve your ability to retain information and problem solve and think creatively. They also have the added benefit of improving your mental health and maintaining your mental fitness. What motivated you to write this? Because you do a lot of work with young people in schools, don't you? Yeah, so I go into about three schools a week on average. um, And the idea for the the book actually came about because I went to the Far East. But yeah, they, they don't really have much of a concept of mental health out there yet. They're, I, they're about 10 years behind the UK, I would say. But there is a completely different culture when it comes to exams and academic attainment. And I thought if I'm going to make the parents in particular in the school I was working in care about this, I have to Trojan horse it. And so I actually, I did a parent talk, which was how to support your child through exams. And I was saying, you know, this, this, if they get enough sleep, that will actually uh, improve their ability to retain information and recall it under pressure. In my head, I'm thinking, 
it's also going to be great for their mental health. Yeah. Um, and that's where the, the kind of embryo of the idea came from. And then, of course, in the UK, we've got, since 2010, more and more pressure has been put on young people. And it's led to this epidemic of exam stress. Like all the major children's mental health charities are saying they're getting children who are calling them in extreme distress about it. I think this is a massive shift from when I was at school. Mm. So I don't have kids, but my, my brother and my sister-in-law are teachers, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of children. And uh, obviously some of my friends have kids, but the exam pressure starts so young these days. Like primary school, they're having to like gen up on tests and stuff. Mm. Yeah, there's that. And there's also the fact that coursework has been pretty much taken away mm. in secondary education. So now... It's really? Lot, yeah, so about 95% of your grade is determined by the final exam. Well, that's stupid. And in a lot of schools, <laughs> they're, they're beginning preparation for GCSEs a year earlier. So yeah. they're beginning in year nine. So it's not just the exam in of itself, because you get all these people who are not aware of children <laughs> um, who kind of go, well, I had exams and I'm fine, you know. But it's the fact that for three years, your whole life is pointing at this one day and you're kind of hyper aware of it. And that kind of increases the the pressure throughout the term, as well as the, the added pressure of if I have an off day, you know, that's my whole life. Until I went to uni, I don't think I've ever was stressed about exams. And I deserved that. I deserved to learn that lesson. I needed that. But things are really different for kids now, aren't they? Like, the pressures that they have... I mean, I guess there's always pressure for jobs and stuff, but but much more pressure for places at university and things like that. Yeah. And more debts, and um, there's just so many different factors, but you couple that with... All the things that we know have a kind of proven therapeutic value, so things like um, art, sport, drama, music, have been cut. Oh, massively. So you've got added pressure and less healthy coping mechanisms. And that's why yeah, there was a, a study that came out just last week that said that a third of 16 to 25-year-olds have self-harmed in the past year. Wow, oh, that's, that's horrible. No surprise to me, though. If you imagine you've got all of this added pressure and it has nowhere to go, um, it, and I actually, I mean, this is, I really hate being right about this, but I, I wrote an open letter to Michael Gove in 2012 that was published in The Telegraph saying that these education policies are going to lead to a crisis in mental health in young people. But there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement in that. The, the government is trying to replicate um, the, a kind of a Korean or a Chinese education system because they're thinking about the economy they haven't taken into account that first of all they've got a completely different culture and you can't just insert an education system into a different country and expect it to work but also that those countries have a really high adolescent suicide rate yeah massively high yeah you're an expert though so i'm not sure michael gove would have been interested in what you have to say (laughs) no but also i mean i just think I feel like I talk about this quite a lot with various different people at the moment, but it's all so knee-jerk and short-sighted because what about the cost to the economy Mm. of mental health? It is really short-sighted and it's what, um, you know, James O'Brien on LBC, LBC. yeah, he calls it the the wet leaves um, effect where, you know, if you've got wet leaves on a pavement, you go... uh, we're going to stop the the budget for sweeping up the wet leaves. You save money, but then long term, more people 
slip over. So it's a cost to the NHS. But that's a different pocket of money. Like it's because everything's so disjointed. There's no joined up thinking between the departments of health and education and the DWP. They just don't talk to each other. And yeah, the whole thing's a mess. Like who would be in charge now? What sort of unique pressures are young people facing now? Well, I think it's um, a combination of a lot of the adults in young people's lives are really stressed because of austerity, um, really. So you've got highly stressed teachers, highly stressed parents who are very time poor. Children have less of a community uh, around them, less of a support system. Add to that the the knowledge that they have of everything. Like, I, I always think social media is talked about in really negative terms when it comes to young people and it definitely has advantages but I think one of the disadvantages is the kind of immediacy of the the knowledge that you have of current affairs so like I think back to when I was a teenager and I sort of knew that we invaded Iraq and that Princess Diana died but were they related sorry no (laughs) you know but beyond that I was pretty much oblivious to to anything political I found it all quite boring believe it or not at the time but the world is scary like you know too much about it and it's scary and so you've got you've got just all this pressure um on young people at a period of in their life when their brains are still developing and there's some really interesting research now that's being done into where that line is in the developing brain between stress and trauma and what happens to a developing brain when you put an adult amount of stress on it? So this argument that's always given by uh, Govians, let's call them, <laughs> is, uh, is, you know... Wow, well, imagine being a Govian. Imagine being a Govian. and feel a bit know, queasy. <laughs> like a Hoovian, but... Yeah. <laughs> oh, wowzers. Yeah. But they always say, you know, life is stressful and we have to prepare children for the realities of life. And, and you kind of go, well... But you're assuming that they can deal with an adult amount of pressure, which they can't. You know, like a lot of adults can't. No. So why do we think kids would be able to deal with that? It is almost like that a real kind of eugenicsy type argument, isn't it? We're like we're going to sort the wheat from the chaff, Mm -hmm. and it's horrible. Yeah. I think what you were saying about the news as well and that access that young people have to a 24-hour news therefore they up the ante in sensationalism anyway because they've just got to keep reporting on the same thing but also you've got all those wormholes you can go down and if you are stressed about something it's, it's that don't google your symptoms thing isn't yeah, it right yeah, yeah so you can just get into a cycle of more and more stress so how do we help them combat that well i think People tend to have two reactions to stress. They, they either stress about stress because they've been taught that any kind of stress is universally a bad thing. So they go, oh, God, I'm stressed. That must mean there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Or they completely deny stress and they go, you know, I'm not a snowflake. I'm going to soldier through. I don't even feel stressed. And both of those will ultimately lead to more stress long term. Um, so I think the first thing is to acknowledge that we have evolved to be highly stressed. Human beings who had the most cortisol in their system back when we lived in a tribal existence moved more. Because you, you know when you feel stressed, it makes you sort of itchy. Gives That's, you energy. Yeah, it's the yeah. only way I can describe yeah. it. So they would be less vulnerable to predators. So they weren't picked off, which meant that they survived to pass down their genes. So all human beings have an inbuilt propensity to stress I think the first thing is to acknowledge that that you are going to feel it and it doesn't make you a failure in Mm -hmm. any way and it's nothing that's abnormal or something to worry about 
But what you want to do is keep your, your levels of cortisol and adrenaline manageable. So it's a bit like um, don't wait until you're really thirsty before you have a drink of water. You should be doing something every day to release stress from the stress bucket. And the problem with uh, uh, the way that a lot of young people think about exams is, as it's coming up to exam time, they go, oh, I'm going to give up my piano lessons. I'm going to drop out the netball team. Uh No more girl guiding for me. And those are the things that are keeping them sane. Yeah. So in the book, what I recommend is they look at the activities that are generating mental fitness and plan their revision around those rather than what most people do, which is the other way around. Yeah, that's a really good tip. And like, I'm guessing like throughout the book, all these tips that are great for kids are going to be pretty good for adults who are going through this sort of thing as well. There is so much that is directly applicable to the workplace. Are you still working on trying to get mental health issues dealt with much much better in the workplace yeah i am um this the where's your head at campaign is a, a kind of um manifesto of good practice for bosses how to look after employee mental health and at the center of it there's a law change around mental health first aid in the workplace and we've so nearly got the law changed so many times and then there's been a change of cabinet mm. i mean it has been like it's a not, farce recently it's not been a great yeah. time for getting stuff done has it it's it's like jen said earlier it's the same science of like this is this is going to be better for the economy Mm. look after your workers better but it's that initial outlay that i think maybe a tory government would balk at well it's also i think it's that just the general attitude of who they're playing to uh, you know in order to get that huge landslide majority the Conservatives had to essentially absorb people who would have voted for the Brexit Party or for UKIP, which means they've had to become much more extreme. They're kind of on the fringes of the political spectrum now, and they have to keep those people happy. Um, and that means, yeah, saying a lot of things that I... Hang on. Mark Francois. Yes. Don't tell me he's not a fan of... of- Promoting Frank good <laughs> <laughs> promoting good mental health in the workplace. Shut that, up, I bet he's well on that, isn't he? he? I mean, he should be. He permanently looks like his head is going to explode. He's <laughs> a very curious <laughs> shade of puce. I mean, the person that I have to try and win over at the moment for the workplace man- mental health campaign is Nadine Doris. Oh, wow, good luck. Oh, she's got absolutely no empathy whatsoever. <laughs> so is she... She's is Minister she... for Suicide Prevention. I don't know where to start. Because I was, I was looking at her voting record and some of the things she said publicly, because I find, you know, if you can have something in common with someone... Who's like, putting that woman anywhere near health? Well... She's insane. This is the thing. Like, I, I actually had a really nice yeah. conversation with Anne Widdicombe once, because we both love dogs, you know, so you always find that sort of area of commonality, right? <laughs> so, so, I'm, so I'm Oddly like, enough, <laughs> in the building we're in, I am directly opposite of a picture of a dog that looks like Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> it's... It's a crazy coincidence. It's like I'm looking through what she believes in, and it's basically Brexit at any cost, ban the burqa, and let's revisit gay marriage because maybe that shouldn't be legal. These are her policies. I'm like, there's literally nothing. There's nothing here no. that I can grasp onto. But it's also also pulling back abortion rights. She wants to do that too. She really does. Put that She's on her list it for a long old time. What a what a big old to do list she has. She, and mental health, no doubt, is that high up on it. It's getting people like that who are in power now to recognise how beneficial it is to young people to start dealing with their any mental health issues or potential mental health issues from a really early age. From as soon as they're getting that sort of outside stress put on them, like exams that are happening in primary school, 
So how do you go about convincing people who are in power that this needs to happen? I mean, you write a book, so well done. Thank you. But what else? <laughs> it's really difficult because mm. I, I, there will be educators who will disagree with what I've put in the book, that they will be in a minority. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I don't think I'm writing anything that most teachers don't know either instinctually or because they're trying to introduce that practice into their classroom it's the the as you say the pressure from policymakers, which is then put on schools which then filters down through the senior leadership team right down to ultimately the children so we won't see a revolution until we have different government but my thing with this book is until the revolution comes, you need to help the young people that are currently within the system. So that's why the tips are very kind of practical and things that you could do this second. Not because I think it's okay, the system that they're in, but because I want to give them something, you know, to help them get through it with their sanity intact. Yeah. It's a book written for kids or is it written for parents or like guardians? It's written for kids. I imagine a lot of parents will read it as well, which is a good thing. At the end, there is a contract. Um, So I had various experts contribute to the book, one of which was uh, Philippa Perry. Oh, she's great. She's amazing. I love her. And um, she, (laughs) we were talking about like, what do young people need during that exam time? And she said, like, I think what they need more than anything is for the adults in their life to trust them that they're doing their revision. They're doing their study, like not check up on them every three seconds and just bug them. And and so I created this contract between um, young people and their parents just to say, look, I will do my revision if you stop bugging me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Signed. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, it's just healthy for both parties involved, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it, it was so funny the way, because I said, oh, what, I said to Philippa, what, do you think young people should say to their parents? And she wrote this beautifully eloquent speech where she was like, I ask you, nay plead. (laughs) I've never met a 15 year old that would use the the phrase nay plead, but here's hoping. (laughs) More more of that please, 15 year olds. Absolutely. But don't feel pressured to use it in your own time. Natasha, your book is out now and I assume available from all good bookshops and And, and the bad ones. Where can we find you, Natasha? on the interwebs so we can see what sort of debates you're having with various (laughs) people. I'm underscore Natasha Devon, like the county, on Twitter and Instagram. And that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster reminded us we need to worm the cat this week? This week, this was your choice, we watched 1990 film Tremors, which I had never seen before. You discovered that it's not just a film in its own right, it's part of a franchise. The film series, and it, it has to be said that all of the others went straight to video. No. It uh, goes up to five, <laughs> and then there were two TV series. No! The last one. The last attempt was in 2018, but only got as far as a pilot. I mean, they really have taken everything they possibly could from this fairly limited concept. I sort of feel like I don't want to watch the second and the third, but I'd quite like to watch like the fourth or the fifth just to see just how terrible they are. 
Apparently the actor who plays Bert is the only actor who is in all of them. You're Bert right. is the gunto in bomb-making quince-type character. The dad out of family ties. I've got an <laughs> odd skill of being able to recognise people out of other things, and I've done it quite a lot in this. Yeah, did you see the little girl yeah, from yeah. Jurassic Park? Yeah, yeah, Vegisaurus! No. <laughs> did you notice yeah. that Bert's wife was the country and western singer Reba, Reba McIntyre? McIntyre. Yeah, yeah. Well. yeah. Okay, so that's all of the excitement I can possibly get out of this film. Already gone. <laughs> I mean, it starts with Kevin Bacon pissing off the side of a cliff. Any film that does that, I give it some points. He and Fred Ward, Kevin Bacon's character and Fred Ward's character are hicks, I suppose is the word. They're called Valentine and Earl. Yes. <laughs> Who go from town to town to get some work. And they've been in this town called Perfection, which has a population of 14 and a huge shop, to be honest. <laughs> How does that stay in business? A shop with toilets as well. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this film, in many ways, it started off as sort of an analogy for my life at the moment. It's like they really want to leave, but they fucking can't. They have to stay. Every way they try to leave, they're like, no, you must stay. That isn't, you know, that's stuff. not just your life, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Just, it's not just being imposed <laughs> on you and we're all having a lovely time. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I have my suspicions. Um, <laughs> I did have a dream that I walked past a pub and everybody I knew was in the pub. And I was like, oh, those bastards. Apart from that, it's just been straight up nightmares for the last three weeks. Talking about dreams, though, I used to dream about this film when I was little. Really? I used to have recurring dreams about this film when they're all stood on the roofs and the graboids, sandworms, whatever you're going to call them, are coming up. I used to dream about this and scare myself shitless, this and the sandworm from Beetlejuice. Had you you seen the film? Oh. Yeah, I didn't like it. Because that, that would have been, been really amazing. impressive. <laughs> yeah, be, be kind, guys. I imagined this film. So. <laughs> anyway, there's a number of weird things start to happen. A guy who is found up an electricity pylon, they first think that he's had a heart attack, but then they ask the doctor, and the doctor just takes a look at him and goes, no, he's died of dehydration. No autopsy necessary. Then we get a shot of a man whose do- who's sheep are all panicking, and there's some brilliant eye close-ups on the sheep who are... He, <laughs> <laughs> he does one of my favourite things that exists in films, which is he visibly dismisses something. He, he, he does a look to the side to go, that's weird, and then he goes... No, I will continue doing (laughs) what I've been doing. I call it the Boris Johnson look. Yeah, that was a mistake because then we start to get like the bodies piling up and what you end up with is a siege of the town by four of these enormous creatures and they are basically trying to eat human flesh. They come up under the ground, I don't know, worms, whatever. We'd never quite clarify what they are. They're just things. So this, the population of this town kind of have to group together. They include a, a, a woman, obviously, who's a lady seismologist, who Kevin Bacon's character initially dismisses because she's not blonde and he only likes blondes. And then he flips down and you see a photograph of, like, this blonde. And that, that is, she's so clearly wearing a wig in that photograph. That's so clearly <laughs> not her hair. So he just it likes just women seems... who own blonde wigs. <laughs> I don't really have a lot to say about it. Just in case anyone hasn't seen Tremors, it might be worth pointing out that the sandworm monsters are attracted to our seismic activity, so like the trembling. Yes. The Tremors of the title, yeah. if you will. Which which leads me to about four questions that I have from this film. One of them is, will that waistband on trousers ever come back, do you think? That kind of 90s thing where they were quite tight, but they were a bit puffy around the pockets. <laughs> the 90s oh, yeah. trousers. back. 
Are they back? The paper bag. Is it a paper bag? Yeah, yeah, I've got a skirt like that. I yeah. wear it quite a lot. Oh, okay. Well, that shows what I know well, about fashion. Well, you I answered didn't, that question. I didn't know either. <laughs> uh, this, the second question is, how does it take them so long to come up with the decoy plan? Because I had the decoy plan when they were stuck on the rock. Just make other noises. Just throw, make vibrations elsewhere. It takes them absolutely ages to suddenly, they let that little tractor off, don't they? Yes. To cause vibrations. Yeah. And it takes them, they're a long way into the plot before that happens third question is who does that teenage boy belong to oh and why can't he die (laughs) he's so (laughs) annoying (laughs) who are his parents he just appears to live in this town by himself (laughs) in a tin toilet he lives in like a tin toilet on his own (laughs) there are so many toilets as an ibs sufferer i'm really happy with how many toilets there are in this film Gotta be careful what you wish for. On EastEnders, they had a thing about a month ago where they were going to kill off a character on a on a boating disaster, and I prayed all week for it to be Sharon's son Dennis because he's horrible. And then it was, and I felt quite bad to be honest because I just wished death on a on a young boy. <laughs> I like that in these terrible times we're living in, that's what Jen's spending her prayers on. <laughs> Predates lockdown, just FYI. And I did feel quite guilty afterwards and questioned my future as a parent. So, yeah. Too late. <laughs> the whole film in the end basically descends into a game of hot lava where no one can put their foot on the floor and they're all up on roofs. It has a really satisfactory number of uses of the word mother humper which I quite enjoy. And also mm. there's quite a few uses of the word unprecedented, which really stuck out, which I wouldn't normally notice in something. <laughs> so my fourth question is, when Rhonda, the seismologist, has to take her trousers off because yeah. she gets barbed wire wrapped around her legs, she had hairy legs. Is that the only use of a woman, like the love interest, having really hairy legs in a film? I didn't notice it. She's, she's, I didn't, I didn't notice it. She's blonde. So it's not like she had really, like, my hairy legs. But... Hang on, I thought they were that definitely... she wasn't blonde enough. No, but her... Yeah, well, obviously. But the actress okay. clearly had blonde right, hairy okay. legs. Okay. But they were they were hairy. They were unshaven legs. And they're not being commented on no. as well. I mean, they were putting plasters on it. And I, that's probably why it stuck in my mind. Because I thought, fuck, that's going to hurt when you take them <laughs> off. Just free wax. How hairy? <laughs> I'm going to have to watch it again. (laughs) And then actually, like, she does cop off with him in the end. So that isn't even that, you know, they don't all go, they don't all make a joke about having hairy legs and then she ends up being like, I don't know, a spinster forever. (laughs) They only kiss Jen. That's still a possibility. Yeah. He's not exactly a catch either, is he? It's Kevin Bacon, though. She could definitely do better. He can, he can. No, I don't get no. it. Oh no! Every now and again, like when he got really mad, me and Gary just kept thinking he was going to start dancing. <laughs> oh, disappointing that he didn't. You don't get it. Oh, oh I, I don't fancy him, but he's not. He's not horrific. We all know that Jen likes Fred Ward instead. <laughs> I do. Yeah, he's really handsome. It's grizzly. What, what's he been in before? Other uh, other films. Um, <laughs> don't know. I can tell you because I Googled him. I really recognised him, but then I didn't know anything that it said he'd well, been no. in. I was like, I don't I Googled that. him. I thought that he was Dolly Parton's husband in Steel Magnolias, but he's not. And yeah, I didn't recognise any of the films he'd been in either. But he has a very recognisable face and he has worked quite consistently since the 1970s. So he's done all right for himself, although I couldn't tell you anything he's been in. 
But isn't that Trim. also the best case scenario? Because he's still in work and he's got loads of work and he's still feeding his family and all of that. But he still can go to like Asda and nobody bothers him. Surely that's the best case scenario. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not now. Like happened. <laughs> you can't go to Asda now. Like, no, he's in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. He's 77. He shouldn't no, be leaving his house. He's, no, he's very vulnerable. He definitely be shielding himself. Yeah. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say about this much, so uh, should we go to the sheet? Can I just say, I thought it was, you know when we watch a lot of disaster films, they're really, really epic. This is a very contained disaster. Like, the town boasts that it's got total geographic isolation, which is why Bert and his country singer wife have moved there to shoot things. And I thought that was quite cool to have something that was literally, like, blocked off from the rest of the world clearly these sandworms only exist in this little bit of i don't know texas i'm guessing and i also thought the characters were quite nicely fleshed out in this contained world even the guy who dies from over from dehydration up a pylon has this weird little backstory of being a bit of a booze hound and well we get stuck up pylons and I quite like that. I thought it's clearly a Jaws knockoff. I quite liked it because I thought it moved along really. My problem sometimes with films that aren't, haven't been made recently is that they're very slow compared to how our expectation of how everything has to be fast now. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it moved along at a fair old lick. I thought it was silly. I came up with an alternative title. Do you want to know my other title? Yeah. Snakes, yeah. snakes yeah. on a plane. <laughs> But P-L-A-I-N. P-L-A-I-N. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Right. Nice. (laughs) I also liked it, like, its version of America is that, like, the fact that there's a town called Perfection. Like, I don't know if there does exist a town called Perfection, but it is the kind of thing that America would do, right? So it's it's like that Stranger Things America that has never and yet always existed. And I thought that was quite the nice little hotspot for this disaster. It reminded me a bit of somewhere I went to right on the border of Louisiana and Texas that was called Marytown, which was ironic. <laughs> yeah, my brother and I, we, when we we were in America, we went to a place called Aladdin, which was in <laughs> Wyoming. What? Yeah, Aladdin <laughs> nice. in Wyoming, and it had, I think, 22 people live there, and it had the most glorious junk shop. It was just, just so much great shit in there. And the stuff you were like, oh, God, why are we in a foreign country? Because we can't bring it home with us. Like, not like we can go, mm. oh, just put it all in the back of the car. Oh, please tell me the drink shop was called Aladdin's Cave. <laughs> it certainly was. Yes. The, the school was, was the bus. There was a school bus, and that was the school. <laughs> wow. That's where the classes took place. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, America. Let's, let's go on to this. I, I mean, I did, let's say I didn't dislike this but uh, I don't know that I'd ever rush to watch it again. It was mercifully yes, brief. it was short. And I think all films that are like that should be an hour and a half. Yeah. Agreed. I agree. Yeah, right. I, I, I had fond memories of it and it didn't quite live up to it, but I wasn't annoyed that my time had been wasted. Mm. And it, these days we've got loads of time, so it's a plus. Yeah. <laughs> if something wastes your time now, then yeah, it's been a really, really bad experience, hasn't it? Basically, yeah, yeah, you come out of that thinking that was a waste as opposed to, yeah. oh, well, there's only four more <laughs> well, hours left in the day for thinking. <laughs> yeah, I have three. I don't know if I've got one. I think I've got four and a half. I might be a bit try hard because it's my first week with a bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> I've got three. I've got five and a half, I have realised. Sorry, counted Ooh. wrong. Do you want to start then, Sarah? Okay. Running away from explosion. That was at the end. Blue Peter quality models. Yes, because they looked like they were puppets Aww. with hands in. They did, they looked very handsome. America, handsome. fuck yeah. 
Yes, the couple with the guns. <laughs> um, it's crazy, but it might just work. The d- bit where they decided to use the digger and collect the people in the bit after it, and they were like, you can't do that. And they were like, let's give it a try. Now, this is a question mark. A hot-wired vehicle is on my bingo card, but she didn't hot-wire it, but she did have to push the accelerator with her hands. So I didn't know if that would count yeah, as a way of kind of fudging a drive. Maybe not. And waste bin water, that was my half because it was waste bin sand, so it doesn't really count. But it, there was no water anywhere near. So. They do call sand dry water. Oh no. <laughs> so if, would you, which ones are you allowing? Would you, there's, there's, th- there's three um, well, definites. The thing about hot wire in the car is uh, what appeals to me about it is just how, you know, everyone just starts stealing in disaster oh, films. Yeah. And that was actually her car, so I don't think okay, that. Okay, let's cross that um, out. And waste bin water, uh, but it was sand. No, I've okay. got three. Yeah, I think you still won. Okay, I've got three then, if you're not allowing those. So I've got, but I have to find my son, slash, where's Mindy? Nature, you cruel mistress, because, I mean, we don't know what they were, but surely uh, nature's... Mick, to be fair, there's probably somewhere off screen saying about Melvin, I've got to find my son. I, 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 <laughs> I've got a son and I don't know where the fuck he is. Yeah. I think that's Tremors 43. <laughs> um, and could title be a porn film title? Absolutely. <laughs> And I've got to say, on the where are the fucking women front, the women here have quite a lot to do and come up with some of the best ideas. Yeah. So yeah. thumbs up to Tremors. Yeah. But I did think it was disappointing that as soon as you see her, you're like, she's roughly the same age as Kevin Bacon. They're going to knob. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> shipping was annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, for no other reason. There's literally nothing. They have nothing in common. But he has to, they're completely he has to learn unsuitable. the error of his ways. Uh, that uh, what but he fancies like... is not the right thing. <laughs> but why is his mate Earl so so keen for Valentine to get his dick wet? He's just like they're in the midst of this disaster, and he just keeps giving him a cheeky wink, like <laughs> "Go for it, my son." He's like, mate, we've got bigger worms to deal with here mm-hmm. than your cock. <laughs> Jen, the only straw I can really clutch at is only a geologist slash man of natural science would wear this but a woman of natural science with hairy legs and that is supposed (laughs) to denote that she's a scientist so maybe it's so she can pick up on the vibrations yeah maybe (laughs) maybe yeah so one (laughs) i've got old person sacrifice but i don't think anyone did sacrifice themselves they just died so um, they just died so i've got thing you can't do meaning you would definitely die in this film pole vaulting (laughs) i actually whatsapped hannah and was like how are you at pole vaulting i think i found the thing you would definitely die because you can't do and then i have adopt brace position when they were lobbing the bombs and then all going and hiding behind the rock yeah so i have two it's a low scoring round but millican is the winner yeah i had four i counted them wrong again so i get to choose millican the young pretender (laughs) is it snakes on a plane is the one gen one Look how excited yeah, she is. Yeah, let's just do that then. Hang on, Sarah. Do you want wow. snakes on a plane, N-E, or you want to watch this again? <laughs> nice, thanks. Got another chance to do a joke. Uh, <laughs> 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 you are my audience. Sorry, guys. Uh, um, uh, proper Samuel Jackson. Let's give it a go. I've never watched it. I'll happily watch that on Saturday night. You're going to oh, love it. I went to see it at the cinema at midnight on the day it was released. <laughs> And how do you feel about that 10 English pounds? <laughs> Can we end the podcast now? <laughs> Standard issue.
for all women.